Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favour. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of the harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab and Naomi. She said, with Naomi, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay with, stay with the woman, the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favour in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine and vinegar. And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. And as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her, even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she'd been working. The man, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. She added, that man is our close relative and he is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, 
He even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. Thanks, Mike. Well, thanks for the invitation to come speak this morning. It's nice to be here. Um, uh, the branch, both many individuals here as well as as a church, are prayer and financial supporters with the mission work we do down at UTAS in Hobart. So I thought I might begin just by giving you one little update about what's happening down in Hobart uh, for your encouragement and I hope your laughter as well. And it's the story about a, a young guy called Jackson. One of the things we've found at university is there's a lot of openness for people to hear about um, Christianity, especially amongst the mainland Chinese. And so often with that side of ministry, you can run an event and have dozens and dozens of of atheist non-Christians eager to come and learn about the Bible for the first ever time. But when you then turn to try and share the gospel with someone who's Australian-born several generations deep, you can often find hostility maybe but normally just total apathy. Would you like to talk about Jesus, you say to a white Australian, and you may as well say, would you like to talk about cassette tapes? Uh, There's just just no no interest um, at all. And so it's especially exciting when we see God and his grace actually uh, create openings uh, amongst... uh, not only the, the mainland Australia, uh, Chinese that God is bringing uh, to, to our shores, but also amongst, um, amongst Australian-born students as well. Last year, we saw two girls, um, uh, Maddie and Ella, both come to faith in Christ um, through the mission, which is just so exciting, and they're continuing on in the Lord, which is wonderful. This year, we met Jackson in our first week of semester. He, um, uh, he had a piece of pizza in the fridge, he told us, uh, that he was going to eat for lunch, but in the morning, um, his flatmate had stolen his pizza. So then he came to university, and uh, this guy was, um, he comes from uh, like Airlie Beach in the, uh, was it the Whitsundays, um, and so he's, he just pictured the kind of guy who comes from the Whitsundays, and that's the kind of guy he is. Um, and, uh, and so he says, he came to uni, and we were doing our survey to try and just get a spiritual gauge on, you know, what do you believe about religion, about Jesus, would you like to find out more about our group? Uh, and, and he did that survey that we were doing with hundreds of students, um, and then got invited to our free pizza party. Whoa. <laughs> he figured, kind of laughing, oh, that must be a sign. <laughs> um, and so he comes to our free pizza party and spends several hours there chatting with a bunch of our students, including a bunch of Launceston students who'd moved down and, and already gotten involved by that early stage. Um, and, uh, and, and I think, as he told us later, he was beginning to be shifted from expecting to laugh at Christians to instead going actually, these guys are nice. They're all right, actually. And so began to then come along to our events and kept kind of having the, maybe I might laugh at Christians to, actually, I'm kind of liking these people and I'm kind of interested. He came along to our events, signed up for our, um, our Bible study course for those who aren't Christians. Um, the whole way along, it just seemed to be like doors were opening, things were clicking. Um, uh, you know, he'd sit right up the front like where Glenn is, um, in the, like this, <laughs> with his kind of surfy hair. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and it, you know, we as the staff and the student leaders kept kind of going, we think God's doing a work in this guy, but it just seems too good to be true. Um, and, and yet it really does seem that God has done a, a work of salvation in him. We're, we're delighted to see that. He's, he's 
you know, now engage as a part of our group, learning about prayer, learning about scripture. When he um, got to the study, actually in our Bible studies on the, the death of Jesus, um, all the way through it, he was like, whoa, no way. Judas, man, you know, at the end of that one, he actually, um, he said, can we read what happens next? You know, the resurrection was the next week. I've got to find out. (laughs) Just, there's something really refreshing for you as a Christian. When you watch someone see it for the first time, it reminds you again just how good it is. And so we're just really delighted with that. And and it's, it's great to see actually that He's even going to be going to the National Student Conference up in Canberra in December this year, and um, we'll get to whoa there as well. It really is. Um, it's we're really praising God for him, and uh, and please pray for many other students who this year have been coming along to various events, as well as for um for the friends and family of Jackson as he shares with them this newfound faith that he has. Um, it's uh, it's a really exciting thing. So. Um, Let's pray. We'll pray about that, and then we'll also turn to um, pray for God to help us as we come to his word, okay? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much when you choose to act in blessing and mercy, open blind eyes and uh, soften hard hearts and give the, the shine, the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ um, in new people. Uh, we rejoice with the angels in heaven when a single sinner repents, and we thank you so much for our, our new brother in Christ, Jackson. We pray that he will persevere through the struggles of, of, uh, that we all know come with following you, both the, the worries of this life and the allure of, of uh, wealth and other things, as well as the hard struggles and persecutions that come with, uh, with following Jesus. And we pray all of that, uh, that you will form Christ in him and actually make him fruitful in both good deeds and in sharing his faith with still others. We pray now that you help us uh, have listening ears and soft hearts to receive your word, to test um, my teaching, to see if it matches what is in scripture, and insofar as it does, to receive it as your words, uh, to trust and obey, as we've already sung. I pray that I may speak truly um, and, uh, and may honour you as we worship you in the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name we ask these good things. Amen. Uh, If you haven't uh, been part of this series already, I started last week looking at this gorgeous little book of Ruth. And if you missed that, I I listened to last week's sermon on the website. And it's an excellent introduction to the story of the book. We'll be diving in into chapter um, 2. It's a great little book. It's uh, many people's favourite books, understandably so. It's so beautifully written and engaging. One of the things that's especially striking about Ruth is, um, uh, is for the, the fact that particularly focuses in on women's lives and has strong three-dimensional female characters, uh, not incidental female characters, but multiple female characters who, for whose lives, concerns, desires, emotions, uh, character arc. It's quite, quite a rich book in that way. It leads some people to think that perhaps this was written by a woman. I mean, we can't really know one way or the other, but perhaps. And as I was sort of thinking about the book of Ruth, it brought to mind something that I often see, perhaps particularly working with um, uni students, a thing that pops it up from time to time, is a, a, a test in modern film analysis, feminist film analysis, called the, the Bechdel test. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of the Bechdel test. Has anyone heard of that before? 
Uh, one. There we go. One or two. Um, so the test comes from a, a comic strip, feminist comic strip, Alison Bechdel wrote, where she says, let's test films, let's analyse films according to these criteria. Number one, does it have two women in the film? Number two, do they talk to each other? <laughs> Number three, do they talk to each other about something other than a man? <laughs> Sometimes they add a fourth to this test, which is, do the women have names? Now, that sounds silly, right? Of course, there's plenty of films that have multiple female characters that talk to each other about something other than a man and have names. Although, funnily, many, many films don't. It's actually quite... If you Google Bechdel text and model films, you'll be amazed how many uh, films that we watch and love actually only have women appear to go, oh, man, 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 I desire the man, let's help the man, blah, blah, blah. Don't you think so, other woman who doesn't have a name? Because it doesn't matter. <laughs> There's a simpler version of the same test, which is called the sexy lamp test. If you can replace all the female characters in, for example, a James Bond film with sexy lamps and nothing really changes, <laughs> then again, you've got a problem, don't you? <laughs> um, even, actually, a, a website called Polygraph recently published an article looking at Disney films um, where women are the main character and, and showed that in many of those films, the men characters end up having most of the lines of dialogue. Now, if we're talking The Little Mermaid or Tangled, that's a little unfair, since the female is mute for much of it. But, um, uh, but still, it's an, it's an interesting thing, and feminists point this out, and you know, I mean, perhaps in part it's just because a large proportion of the people who write and make films are men. And, uh, and so men write about their own experiences and write about what they think women think about. Men. <laughs> um, but, of course, other films, perhaps set in the military or these sorts of things, might uh, break the test for other reasons. It's, it's an interesting test. It's a blunt instrument. It's a very simple one because, as I say, some stories are male-dominated. Some stories have mute female characters. Some films might pass this simple test but still be sexist films. Other articles and writers on this topic ask the somewhat controversial question... How many women's conversations in real life would pass the Bechdel test? <laughs> After all, to, to be fair, um, in general, many women's lives are concerned with relationships and marriage and children in a way that, in general, men's lives often aren't. That women's lives are intertwined in relationships with men and interacting with that in certain ways that, in a sense, do women have to have conversations about something else for their lives to be meaningful. Yeah, you know, so you've got to ask these sorts of questions. Anyway, what about Ruth and the Bechdel test? That's what I was wondering. All that by way of just interesting background. Um, what about Ruth? Does Ruth present women as only concerned with, um, with men and men's desires and men's issues and men's needs? Does Ruth present women as only there basically to swoon, be rescued or to help or just to be sexy lamps? No, Ruth actually presents women in the way that that Bechdel test says we ought to seek to present women as thinkers, as doers, as instigators with internal lives and concerns and priorities that extend beyond being sexy, being rescued and being romanced. That here we have women who are proactive, initiative-taking, uh, concerned for each other in all sorts of ways. 
Sure, there are concerns of marriage all the way through the book. But we need to realise in the context of the book, that's not primarily just because all Ruth needs is to be desired and pursued. Marriage is also bound up with providing for life for her mother-in-law. In this patriarchal society, that's part of actually... Uh, As we'll see next week, it's a kindness to pursue a marriage that will provide for her mother-in-law and her dead husband's legacy. So it's a a great book to look at, and it's understandably a book that is, is loved often in women's conferences and so forth, for it celebrates what the godly life looks like um, for, for women and their concerns and priorities in general, what friendship, loyalty, agency, vulnerability looks like. But it's not just a book about women for women. Like any story in the Bible which might look at old men or young men or old women or young women or uh, kings or poor people, um, in the end it's a story ultimately where God is the great hero and he's working out his plan and purpose through the lives of men and women, old and young, kings and slaves. That here we have a story about the character of God and the saving purpose of God for everybody and how the kindness of God in his salvation touches people and moves them to kindness. And that's going to be the particular angle in for today. Thinking about kindness, a theme that runs through this book. Loving kindness. First we'll look at the kind people in the book of Ruth. Then we'll step back and realise that behind that is the kind God in the book of Ruth, under whose wings, to take the title of today's sermon, Ruth has come to shelter. And then we'll think about what does that mean for us and our kindness or otherwise. So firstly then, kind people in Ruth. By way of just kind of recap for those who weren't here last week, let's notice how there's actually um, uh, just a bit of the context, right? In verses 1 and 2 in chapter 1, there's this bad decision of Elimelech to move with his family away from the judgment of God to hide in another land. Tragedy strikes in verses 3, 4 and 5 of chapter 1 and there is uh, death of Elimelech and his sons in this foreign land. And so Naomi finds herself in a foreign land without husband, without sons, without, again, in this time and age, often husbands and sons are your centrelink. Uh, she's been cut off from New Start. She's in a foreign land. And she's got these two daughters-in-law who are now also are vulnerable in this foreign land. It's a story of emptying out. If you see 1 verse 19... Um, Uh, And following there, when they come back to Bethlehem, as Naomi explains her life, verse 20, don't call me Naomi, which means sweet. Don't call me sweet, call me bitter. Call me Mara, because the Lord Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full, the Lord's brought me back empty. Why call me sweet? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. It's a story of emptying out, of loss, of bitterness. But as Naomi considers returning to her homeland, we see the first example of kindness. I know we looked at this last week, but just in keeping with the theme, notice with me the the kindness of Ruth and Orpah, these two daughters-in-law, and their kindness to Naomi. Let's read from 8 to 13. Chapter 1, verse 8. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. 
And she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, No, no, we'll go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried with them? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned out against me. They wept aloud. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or to return back from you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. The kindness of Ruth and of Orpah. First of all, both daughters-in-law were kind. It's important to realise that. It's not just Ruth, but both Ruth and Orpah were kind. Verse 8, you have shown kindness. The Lord show you kindness because you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. Yeah, Her daughters-in-law have stuck with with, with Naomi. They've stayed with her. They've accompanied her. They're with her. They've been kind to her and they insist on staying with her. Verse 10, we will go to be with your people. Orpah was kind. It was a wonderful thing she did for her uh, mother-in-law, above and beyond. Yeah? And it's, it's, it's the thing to note that there are different levels of kind that are still good. You see, Orpah didn't have to do what she'd done, but in kindness she'd stayed with her mother-in-law, and that is to be praised and celebrated and honoured in verse 8. But then Ruth went above, above and beyond. In addition to the above and beyond kindness of Orpah, Ruth said, um, you know, Ruth said, so Orpah said, yeah, no, no, we'll stay with you. And Naomi said, no, 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 no. 11 to 13, no, I insist, I insist, you, you, you go. Um, and Orpah said, okay, I offered, but I see your point. That, that wasn't sinful. That wasn't sinful of Orpah to have done that. There's a time and a place to offer a kindness and draw a limit on that kindness, and for it still to be good. But Ruth went above, above and beyond, and so that can be celebrated as more kind without belittling the less kind. Yeah? And that's true today, right? There are many different ways you could be kind, or you could be generous, or you could be sacrificial, or you could be courageous. And just because someone else is more generous, more hospitable, more sacrificial, doesn't make your kindness or generosity not something to be praised and celebrated by the Lord, 1 verse 8. Yeah? But Ruth goes above and beyond. Ruth uh, insists against Naomi's insistence in this beautiful picture of loyalty at great, great personal cost. She's leaving her whole, her life, her people, her culture, her religion, her everything. And she's going to then identify with a people who, who don't, welcome her, at least in big picture, who see her as outside the covenant, as not welcome in the sanctuary, as, as we saw last week. Yeah? Huge sacrifice, huge cost, um, with no guarantee of a future. Extraordinary. Yeah? An amazing picture of kindness in Ruth. 
course, it's more than just a social kindness for her. In doing this, she's sort of kinding herself into the kingdom, isn't she? She's nicing herself into the, the Lord's kingdom. For She doesn't just say, uh, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. But in verse 16 of chapter 1, she says, your God will be my God. You know, people come into faith in many different reasons. Some people are brained into the kingdom through reason and discussion and debate and blog articles and lectures and discussion. They're slowly persuaded of the truth of there is a God, that the God is triune, that he sent his son Jesus who literally rose from the dead in history. And, 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 and eventually they're, they're drawn in, they're brained into the kingdom to begin with. And God uses that path and then by his spirit grants faith and life. Um, other people are kind of romanced into the kingdom. Their starting point is, I like him, I like her. They happen to be Christian. Well, I guess I better look at this Christianity thing. Um, but God, in his grace, uses that kind of somewhat you know, a, a personal interest to cause genuine faith and conversion. Still other people are niced into the kingdom. Uh, I want to do good. These Christians do good. They're concerned with doing good. I want to join with them in doing good. Or this person is in need. I want to serve them. They happen to be a Christian. And and actually it's through a a kind of just a common grace desire to do good that they get drawn in and then slowly begin to hear of the gospel and so come to faith. And so Ruth is drawn in. And and her, her loyalty, her extraordinary act of loyalty... Uh, was so extraordinary that now into chapter 2, it became town gossip. 2 verse 11, Boaz says, I I know about you. (laughs) I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. They've heard all about her. You see it again at the very end of the book, in chapter 4, verse 15, uh, uh, where, again, we have this celebration. Uh, God will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you, Naomi, uh, and who is better to you than seven sons has given them birth. Praising how great you are. You're better than seven sons. Now, perhaps some of us might go, why are sons better than daughters? Okay, look, it is, again, written in a particular cultural context where sons had particular kinds of value in the society. But don't get hung up on that in this verse. Because notice what the verse is saying. It's saying a loyal woman is better than seven sons. Do do you see the point there? Even within a culture which sees certain social value to sons over daughters, the same context biblically here says, but a, a faithful, loyal woman is greater than seven of those sons who might have certain social value. It's actually a great verse. It's a subversive verse, isn't it? So extraordinary was Ruth in her act of kindness and loyalty and self-sacrifice. The kindness of Orpah, the above, above and beyond kindness of Ruth. Then also note the kindness of Boaz in this chapter. So here we have Ruth and Naomi, chapter 2. They have come back uh, to... uh, Israel, Uh, they've now come back empty, come back vulnerable, and Ruth, having accompanied her mother-in-law, now sets about providing for her mother-in-law. 
And she says, I'm going to go into a field to, to uh, pick up uh, leftover grain, verse 2, amongst any, wherever I can find favour. And so Naomi says, go, go, my daughter. And so Naomi goes out and enters a field, verse 3, and begins to glean behind the harvester, harvesters. And then Boaz notices, right? Um, and, uh, and gets told, this is, this is um, uh, Ruth, the daughter of Naomi, gathering. She's been working hard all day, verse 7, only with a short rest. Hard worker. This is the kind of person you'd want to employ if you could find them. Um, and then listen, listen to Boaz's kindness. Verse 8. Boaz says to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the waters of the jar that are filled. He's protective of her. He sees her vulnerability in this society. He's aware that not necessarily every Israelite farm will be as safe for vulnerable women as he wants his property to be. And so he says, I want to keep you safe. Stay here. I will welcome you day after day here. In fact, towards the end of the chapter, we read about him saying, I want you to stay here as long as the harvest endures. Yeah? Um, and, 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 and he's wanting to provide, guarantee her protection, functionally treat her almost like an employee, he's kind of saying. Stick with the women who work for me and you're travelling right along with them, yeah? He's protective of her. Verse 13, um, Ruth says, May I continue to find favour in, in your eyes, my Lord. You've put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant. Though I don't even have the standing of one of your servants. Wow, you're treating me with this kindness. I don't work for you, but it's almost as if you have kind of brought me in. Yeah? And then he actually facilitates uh, her work to make it easier. Uh, so we see there in verse, um, verse 14, um, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar. Um, uh, and, and she sat down with the harvesters and he offered her roasted grain. She ate all she wanted. She had some left over. She got up to glean and then look what he does. He gives orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. More, verse 16, even pull out some of the stalks for her from the bundles and leave them behind. Don't so he's actually saying not only, look, don't lay a hand on her and, and don't rebuke her, but actually make her job easier. Oops, drop some grain. <laughs> you know, he's it's, it's actually, you're an employee more than that. We're kind of working for you a little bit. <laughs> he's now got his staff working for Ruth and Naomi by picking for her. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. And so, verse 17, Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, and then she threshed the barley, gathered it, the amount was up to an ether, and carried it home. Yeah? Down to verse 20 there we read, uh, The Lord bless Boaz, Naomi says, when she hears about what he's done. He's not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Yeah? Wow. The, some of what's going on here is actually mosaic law. Perhaps many of you would know this, but uh, there are laws in the book of Deuteronomy about exactly this kind of thing. So this is actually the law of Moses in practice. And that's one of the things about Ruth. At several points, as you'll see, um, last week you saw it, in the next few weeks, we're often kind of being kicked back to Deuteronomy. In this case, it's Deuteronomy 24. Come back to Deuteronomy 24, and, and we'll see the laws that Boaz is uh, obeying, but 
just as Ruth went above and beyond, so also Boaz does. Deuteronomy 24. And verse 19. Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That's why I commanded you to do this. The foreigner, well, Ruth's a Moabites, and the widow. Well, both Ruth and Naomi are widows. The needy in the society, uh, God says, you were once needy. You were once slaves. You once had nothing. You know what it's like. You've come from nothing. Um, So remember where you've come from and let that shape your conduct and your life and your values. Remember how you were rescued by God. More of that in a second. Um, And so let that shape you. Uh, When I was a teenager, it was a time uh, when uh, the big popular sport that everyone did was rollerblading. Um, And so I learned how to rollerblade, was really active in rollerblading. Um, And at the time, it was very popular, but kind of uncool. And so if you were out at a skate park or something, like down at Royal Park there by the water, and you were rollerblading around, all the skateboarders would would sneer and and go, what are you doing here? It's quite interesting culturally, because back then, um, names like Roller fag and fruit boots were the kind of names that were used. But it's funny now that today you would never possibly use those insults because culture's changed a bit there, hasn't it? Um, uh, And so that was the experience. If you were a rollerblader, then you knew what it was like to be despised. Now, those who've kept rollerblading, even though the sport has declined in popularity, um, now sometimes... Who's the hated person at the skate park now? Can you guess who's the hated one now? It's not the rollerbladers anymore. Do you know who it is now? Scooters. Scooter kids. That's right. It's the, the scooter is the new rollerblader. And so now, because there's so few rollerbladers, no, you know, they're, they're irrelevant. But the, the, the scooters are everywhere swarming like flies. Um, but what's interesting, right, is that whenever, if you're in, in that community of rollerbladers and someone starts to go, oh, I hate the scooter kids, oh, I hate the scooter kids, what's interesting is, without a doubt, you will get a rollerblader say, you can't do that. That's how we were treated. Back in the 1990s, the skateboarders treat... Remember fruit boots? Remember roller fags? That's how we were treated. The scooter kids are the rollerbladers of today. You should treat them the way you wish you were treated. Did you get the analogy? It's the same as those of you who are migrants. You know what it was like to be treated um, as an outsider. What are you doing coming in? Yeah? And you have to keep remembering it because as you get established in Australia as a migrant and work hard, it can be easy to forget where you've come from and look down on the next lot of migrants and go, you know, well, I don't like them coming. <laughs> you need to be, hang on a second, no, no, no. I was once you. I need to... 
So this is what God is saying to Israel. Is you were the slave. You were in need. You were vulnerable. I rescued you. So now that you're in the land, your whole conduct, your whole society in the land should be to welcome those who were needy the way you used to be needy. So Boaz is, is living in line with his faith, living in obedience to the law. It's important to note, though, first of all, we mustn't, I think sometimes the more left-leaning Christian sees these laws as proof of, you know, uh, social security laws in the Bronze Age. Um, But it's not clear that these commands are state law. It's not clear that it was like the government had penalties that if a farmer didn't, you know, pull out the sheaves, then, you know, the uh, department of, you know, um, uh, what's the work... You know, uh, what's Fair Work Australia doesn't come in. Fair Work Israel comes in and goes, oh, we see you're not compliant with, you know, form A, B, three, sheaves and olives, you know, um, and then you get a fine. Uh, it's not clear that that was the, It may have been, but as we get into Ruth, at least, it seems clear that Boaz is aware that not every field is like this. This is a command to the Israelite believer. God says you, to be a faithful believer, should do this. Not necessarily mandated, you see. So it was still Boaz's faithful obedience to actually obey the law of the Lord. Yeah? But more, he goes beyond this. Did you see that? Here it's just, if you happen to drop stuff, don't be a total economic rationalist, improve the bottom line and, and you know, improve your margins and go back and blah, blah, blah. We've got a new harvester, actually, that stopped. You know. It's actually, no, 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 leave it. That's all this says. But back to Ruth, Boaz goes further, doesn't he? He says, welcome her, protect her, provide for her, and drop more. (laughs) That's what he does for her. He goes out of his way to provide for her. Yeah, And that's why Naomi can say in verse 22 of chapter 2, stay in this farm. It's good for you, daughter, to go with the women who work with him in someone else's field you might be harmed. This is a good place to be. He also provides protection for her. He provides water for her, verse 9, so that she can uh, go to the, the, the water that's been filled by his employees. Again, his employees are working for her, getting her water. Um, she's provided food in verse 14 and eats with his employees in the in the the kind of employee shelter space, above and beyond. He's not a Pharisee, letter of the law, bare minimum here. He's above and beyond. The kindness of Orpah, the kindness of Ruth, the kindness of Boaz. But behind all of this is the loving kindness of God himself. And that's the wonderful theme of this book, is how we get humans described again and again with a kindness that when we zoom back is the same kindness that is credited to God as his covenant kindness, his loving kindness, his grace, the New Testament word is used. His grace, the Lord's covenant grace, his favour, his covenant love, his loving kindness, as some translations put it. Yeah, It is from the God who loves that loving people are formed, And it's because of the God who loves that loving people are honoured and celebrated and delighted in. Yeah? And so back in that famous story in Exodus 34, when uh, Moses sees the glory of the Lord, what does he hear about the Lord in Exodus 34 as the, the glory of the Lord passes before him? The Lord, the Lord, abounding in kindness, <laughs> abounding in grace, abounding in love. 
the covenant love God, the God who pledges himself, who binds himself. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will be with you. I will not forsake you. To a thousand generations. Yeah? Let's skim back through afresh. 1 verse 8. May the Lord show you kindness. 2 verse 12, our theme verse for today's sermon. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. 4 verse 11. 4 verse 11. Then the elders of the people and the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming under your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have a standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem through the offspring the Lord gives you. By this young woman, may your family be like that of Judah and Perez. Verse 14. Um, the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter who loves you is greater than uh, many sons. God's kindness is at work in this book. God's mercy, God's refuge, God's shelter. The God of kindness, the God who rescued Israel from Egypt, the God who is now working behind the scenes in the just so happen." Events of this book. It just so happened that Naomi went into this farm, this field. Just so happened. <laughs> in chapter 4, we again read that it just so happened. Uh, well, also, it just so happened Boaz is a guardian redeemer. More of that next week. Um, but uh, it also just so happened that another guardian redeemer is at the gate in chapter 4, verse 1. God's working behind the scenes kindly for his work. God's working through his people, like Boaz, kindly doing their work. People aware of God's love for them and so being made loving and kind themselves. The God of Scripture is a gracious God, a generous God, a promising and committing God who lavishly fulfills his promises, God, to vulnerable people, to sinful people, to undeserving people. Yeah? even to the Gentiles, even to the Moabites, under whom there were certain curses pronounced. The God of the Bible is a God who pledges, who commits, who forgives. He's not the gods of the ancient world and the the gods of other religions who are fickle and capricious and grouchy and selfish, squabbling like the Greek and Roman gods. He's not a a distant... fatalistic God like the, the, the Muslim God or, or a distant force like a, a, a Hindu kind of being and oneness. He's not just nature with a capital N. He's a personal, concerned, compassionate God. So what most Australians take as obvious that religion should make you kind is only really because of Christianity. The connection between kindness and religion is not a a tight connection in many religions of the world. It definitely wasn't in the age of of Ruth, many of the religions of her day. The connection between kindness and religion wasn't obvious in the slightest. But it is so obvious for those who follow the God of Scripture, for that God himself is a kind, personal, loving, gracious God. And so... Now, today in Australia, we just take it for granted. Religion should be about love. 
this love is fully climaxed in the great gospel of Jesus. Come to John chapter 1. And here we have the word grace used in the same kind of place where covenant love could be found in the Old Testament. John chapter 1, verse 14. We read about the coming of Jesus, described here as the word. Jesus described as the word, God the word. We read in John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen Jesus' glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace, kindness, loving kindness and truth. Yeah? Verse 16, out of his fullness we've received grace, kindness, in place of grace, already given. For the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we have the fullness of God's covenant love and grace and kindness and mercy and refuge. We come to shelter under God's wings in Jesus in a full and final way. And as John's gospel goes on to show, the word becomes flesh, not just to show God's glory, but to show God's glory in his cross, to be glorified, lifted up in his cross where he draws all people to himself in his mercy. And his cross is actually, as his arms are stretched out on cross, those are the wings under which we can shelter in the shadow of his glorious cross, where all nations can be gathered and pardoned and find peace and refuge and rescue from a greater slavery than Egypt and rescue from a greater vulnerability than poverty or widowhood. The God of Scripture in Jesus has stooped down And sworn to us by the blood of his son to be kind, to shelter and protect us, to come to our aid. He'll never leave you, he'll never dump you. The devil, death, sin, the world, he frees us from this slavery by his kindness. We who are empty and bitter and nameless because of sin and death can now, because of Jesus, say, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sin? I've made full again. I've made sweet again. So let me ask you then, are you kind? Our final point. Are you kind? As Ruth and Boaz, touched by the Lord's kindness, were kind? Are you kind? As Israel were told, you you were slaves... And were rescued, so you remember that. What about you? you? You were slaves and were forgiven. Remember that. You know that parable Jesus tells about the great debt owed and, and the person who had this massive debt that he couldn't pay back. Um, suddenly then um, uh, has it pardoned by his debtor, but then goes away and for a, you know, I shattered your coffee last week and you haven't paid me back. Urgh. This should not be. That's, that, that's shameful. It's outrageous. Ephesians 4.32 says, Forgive others, just as in Christ God forgave you. Touched by the kindness of the gospel, if you have been, your heart should melt. Can't grow as a Christian and stay callous and hard and prickly and cold and rigid. Can't. To be truly Christian and touched by the gospel, you'll be softened and become gentle. Can't be selfish and stingy and miserable and grow as a Christian. 
It's one of the reasons church is important for us. It's a school of kindness. It's hard being in a church, isn't it? They're all so annoying, aren't they? It's all so frustrating and disappointing often, isn't it? Because, you see, if you live as an individual, you can only deal with people you like or people you pay to be nice to you. And if they don't meet your standards, I'll go somewhere else. Thank you very much. And you can have a very pleasant life, can't you? Man, you're completely curated to be only surrounded by people you like or people you pay to be nice to you. In the church, you're stuck with this lot. And you actually have to live in close quarters with others, sinful people, disappointing people, people from different cultures and different ages. And so it's a school of kindness. You have to learn forbearance, forgiveness, letting go of your rights and preferences for the sake of others, don't you? Early on in becoming a Christian, often the battle people find is having to give up the drink or the drugs. You know, that, that, that's the challenge. It's so hard. But I think often as you carry on as a Christian, it's no longer the, the drink or the drugs or the swear jar or those sorts of things that become so much as the trouble as the battle to actually proactively be kind and be generous and be forgiving. That Those things are much harder things in the end. Yeah? In the end of much harder things, the challenge to keep growing in grace, not give in to bitterness, keep living for others, not just live for yourself. Listen to how C.S. Lewis beautifully describes it. You've probably heard this quote before, but it's a, it's a, it's a winner. To love at all, to love at all, is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap up your heart carefully with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements and then you won't have your heart broken, you see. Lock up your heart safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It won't be broken. It'll become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. It's incredible, isn't it? So, are you kind? Are you kind in the small things? If you've got the finances to do it, do you shout someone a cup of coffee or lunch? Or do you always duck in first and go, just pay for mine, thanks? <laughs> always splitting the bill, if you, you know, even if you could afford it. Do you offer lifts? I mean, we're terrible in Tasmania, aren't we? Five minutes out of the way is like the end of the world. Oh, you're a bit out of my way, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, are you willing to offer lifts or do you then grumble when they don't offer to pay for the petrol? <laughs> do you set aside your preference, realising that going to see a film or going out for dinner is not about the film you wanted to see? It's about fellowship with other people. Yeah? Do you play with kids who might not be as good at whatever sport you like playing, even if it's not as challenging for you? Oh, do we have to play with him? Do we have to play with her? They suck. <laughs> do you welcome others who are a little bit harder to talk to, a little bit awkward to deal with? 
Or are you the kind that gathers, gathers around with your buddies and says, oh, quick, let's go away, quickly, before Francis comes, you know, or whoever it is? Do you put up with inconveniences from family or flatmates or sharehouse members and workmates? Do you say please and thank you? Are you kind in the small things? Are you kind in the big things? Bullying is not a Christian way of living. Yeah? To persistently harangue and pressure and mock and exclude. It must not be that way among God's people. We must be the first to rebuke bullying in our fellowship, but also to protect those who are being bullied and speak out. Shouldn't we? God came in to protect the vulnerable and rescue them against the bully of Pharaoh, against the bully of Satan. Bullying is not a Christian. In the workplace, in the school, in the church. In our business conduct, those of us who have businesses, don't believe the lie that the most important thing in business is making a profit for yourself or the shareholders or whatever. That's rubbish. Businesses have two goals, to benefit society and to generate profit. Two goals, not one. It's a lie, it's a foolish lie that pretends to be wise, that largely our country, our secular country, has bought. The key of a politician is to balance the budget, that's the only thing. And the key of a business is to make money for the shareholders. It's a lie. No, 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 you've got a responsibility as a business. If you, if you own an investment property... You've got a responsibility to provide accommodation for people who can't buy their own homes. Not just the bottom line. Not just get a good return on your investment. Yeah? You need to... I've I've known people... I'm sure there are people here who have been mistreated by landlords, often the most vulnerable people in society, mistreated by cruel landlords who even break um, accommodation law in our country because they know that vulnerable person doesn't know the law and wouldn't have the first way of knowing how to appeal. No, no, no. In your business practices, your job is to provide a livelihood for your employees and to benefit society. If you own investment properties, it's to provide accommodation. You are now uh, an agent of our community providing... You need to care for them, be gentle to them, be understanding. Yeah? What's kind? In your personal finances and planning, in your home patterns of life... I mean, we could go on and on and on, couldn't we? Touched by the kindness of God, do you live a lifestyle of kindness? Most of the greatest things in life, the most honourable things, friendship, marriage, family, children, sport, (laughs) church, are a massive interference to convenience, aren't they? But they're the greatest things in life. May God, by his powerful spirit, make us loving and kind. Yeah. To do that brings great delight to God. To do that draws great rewards in eternal life. May the Lord show you favour. Yeah. To do that commends the gospel. When people see us be kind to the poor, to the weak, to the marginalised, to the fringe communities, even the fringe communities whose morals we don't agree with, yeah, um, when, when, when people see Christians living the way Christians ought to live, it does commend the gospel, yeah? Far better than any graphic design or website or advertising campaign ever could. But ultimately, it's just fitting. It's just, it's just 
the appropriate, the right, the glorious, the natural, the spiritual thing. God has been so kind to me. What way could I worship him more fittingly? What, what would be more fitting as a way of worshipping my God who's been so merciful to me than to practice mercy? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for the God you are. And we beg your mercy for how, how unkind and unmerciful we can be. Forgive us, we pray. Forgive us again, we pray, for Jesus' sake. And we ask that you work a miracle in our hearts, in our habits, in our lives, to make us kind and forgiving, generous and merciful. Make us reflect your character, for we know how beautiful that is. Make us as a whole fellowship have a culture that reflects that character, we pray. What a good thing that would be. (laughs) What a glorious thing it would be and what an honouring thing it would be to you. So we pray for your glory, uh, for our glory, uh, and for the commending of the gospel in our city, in our state, in our country, in our world. We pray these things expectantly as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.